Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. So as I often ask you to do, would you please take out your Bibles if you brought one and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, hopefully we have some near you in the seat racks in front of you. Uh, If you take out one of those black Bibles that says NIV on it, um, it's on page 926, page 926. If you're getting used to 1 Corinthians still, it's in the last fourth of the Bible. And um, uh, Steve often says last fifth, so I'll go for that. And uh, so it's in that back section. And uh, we're looking at the letter to the 1 Corinthians, uh, letter to the Corinthians, the first letter uh, these days going to spend most of 2018 there, and we're entitling this series called A Better Way. Now, I've been thinking about this, that one of the commitments we made many years ago is that as often as possible, we would try and preach through different books of the Bible. It's not, there's nothing wrong with speaking topically. There's time for that, a place for that. We do that from time to time. But one of the things about preaching through the scriptures Uh, that is really striking to me is when we come to 1 Corinthians 5. If we were not committed to that, I would skip this chapter and the next one for sure. But we uh, want to teach all of God's word. And sometimes even when it's challenging, and this one is, um, it's important that we still listen to God. And so I want to just set that up today by saying that. And um, really, I want to talk to you today about discipline. And that word scares us. It's the same root word as disciple. But I want to talk to you about discipline in the church. And the question I want to start off with, if you're following along in the notes, is do I associate discipline or correction with love and concern? Do I associate discipline or correction with love and concern? Uh, Several months ago, I talked to you about how in the book of Proverbs, there is a distinction between wise people and foolish people that's made, and it all has to do with how they respond to correction. And so when you and I hear discipline in our culture, that sometimes can sound unloving, unconcerned, mean, impersonal, and hard. And uh, I just thought it might be helpful if we skip over to Hebrews just for a second and read what the Lord says. So if you look here on the screen, I'll put it here on the screen, um, or someone else will, and I'll read it. Um, In this, this is a message paraphrase, by the way. In this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you to say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves. Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children and that God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines, the child he embraces he also corrects. God is educating you or training you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training the normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us, 
So why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. But God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely, for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. And I've watched, probably you have too, but in healthy families, the boundary lines are clear and they're reinforced when necessary. So that within those boundaries, there is tremendous liberty and freedom. But if they're not clear, it just creates all kinds of confusion and it's not a healthy family. So we want to talk about that today. And in our ongoing commitment, uh, Brian Schwerberg taught on this idea last week, but here's the second question in the notes before we actually get to the passage. And that is this, how do we as a church practice high grace and high truth? How do we as a church practice high grace and high truth? We've talked about this a number of times. John 1.14 says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. That means he was high grace and high truth. Now, the reason why this is important is because all of us tend to emphasize one over the other. It's just a normal challenge. Some of us are more high truth people. Some of us are more high grace people. But Jesus was both. So we as a church have really tried to wrestle and be submitted to the Lord in such a way that as often as possible, we can preach and teach and live and challenge each other, high grace, high truth. Every Christian, every church has to wrestle with this. I don't know about you, but I've noticed that I tend to be high grace and low truth when God wants to put his finger on something that I'm doing that is not what he wants me to do. Anybody notice that? I kind of up the grace factor and lower the truth factor. That's always a temptation. But he wants us to experience the power of both. And so, um, one of the classic examples was John 8, where Jesus challenged the woman caught in the act of adultery. He said, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. But go and make a break. Leave your life of sin. High grace, high truth. So, as we look at this, I want to just ask if you'd pray with me. Because this passage has hit me between the running lights. And I need this message. And I don't know if you, uh, as we we read this, you may say, well, like, why do we need this message? Why can't we just skip it? Here's why. What the Corinthians were wrestling with was the issue of freedoms, personal freedoms. When they had come to know Jesus Christ, they realized that he had set them free from bondage and sin and old habits in their lives. And so now they took his grace and his freedom, the good gift that he gave them, and they began to think that they were free to do whatever they wanted. And if someone questioned that, they didn't like it. I don't know about you, but if someone cramps my style on the road, I don't like it. If someone begins to threaten my rights or my freedoms or my privacy, I suddenly am on edge. And what these Corinthians had begun to do the longer they walked with Christ is they were more interested in protecting what they wanted to do, what they thought they were free to do, more than stay humble about what God wanted them to do. And so there was this tension. And we have the same tension, especially in the United States, where we prize individual freedom and privacy. So let's just pray that the Lord can teach us this morning. Now, Lord, help me be faithful to your word today. 
even though I haven't been completely faithful this week, you know my heart. And so I come before you and I ask, Lord, that you'll show me how to deal with some of the things you've put your finger on. Help me never to preach on something unless I'm willing to run it through my life first. But I pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as a church that we might be healthy and full of grace and truth for your sake and your honor. Amen. Okay, so what to keep in mind with church discipline. If you look at the outline of these 13 verses, the first uh, five verses, he's going to talk about the situation. He's going to name a specific situation going on in Corinth. Verses six through eight, he's going to take an Old Testament picture and show them how to apply it. And then in the last verses, 9 through 13, he's going to actually go back and say, hey, I need to clarify something about a letter I wrote to you earlier that you must misunderstand, and it applies to this situation, okay? So I'm going to ask you to read verse 2 and verse 6 when we get to it. Uh, Before we look at that verse, let me just mention one more line, and that's, I think it's always helpful to go back and just review what we learned at the beginning. Friends, if you and I know what God's original intention was for us, then we can have a better idea when we start to get away from it. And so the very first message we had was called, was called, called. Because what we've learned is that by God's grace, when he saved us, he didn't just forgive us and want to send us to heaven. If that was his only goal, he would have killed us as soon as we were saved, taken us to heaven. But instead, he kept us here because he has a reason for us to be here. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, it says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, it means set apart, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 talks about he has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, if you're following along, God calls us to live a holy life in fellowship with his son. That was his original intention. He's called us for a purpose. We have a reason for being here on earth. Not because we're superior at all but because by his grace, he's given us a calling and a purpose to be salt and light in this world, to live alongside other people and point people to the same grace and truth that God's given us in Christ, this good news. And so part of that is that when we hear the word holy, most of us go, what? I had a buddy this week that said, Jeff, holy has been hijacked. That word has been hijacked. It sounds so like out of touch. But the word holy is actually a beautiful word. It has this idea of wholeness, and it has this idea of being different, distinctly different. So God has called us to be distinctly different in this world, not to be weird, but to be different and be like Jesus, same kind of quality of spirit, same kind of way. So as we look at this, I'm going to read verse one now, and then I'll invite you to read verse two. So you ready? Here we go. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now let me just stop for a second here before we read verse two. Some of us are going, ooh, that sounds weird. Now that's incest, obviously, but what he's saying is, is something that we probably wouldn't make sense in our culture. In those days, many men married much younger women. And so the chances of that being a higher temptation for their kids with their step-parents was 
a possibility. So as they had more than one wife, in some cases that would happen in that culture. So now this person's become a Christian, but he is actually sleeping, and he's, he's, he's literally, uh, either his dad is dead, divorced, or is not around, or he's doing it in his dad's face. But he's doing that, okay? So now we come to verse 2. Let's read what Paul says in the next verse together. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Verse 3. For my part, even though I am not physically present, we learned that he's actually in Ephesus. So that's across the water, uh, a number of uh, miles away, a number of days away by walking. He says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, and remember he was an apostle, so he is designated by God to teach them what Jesus Christ wanted them to learn about how to be a church. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Now, I just need to say this. I said this a few weeks ago. Our culture, even though they don't know a lot of the Bible, they do know judge not. That one gets thrown out very quickly if you challenge people. That's even true in the church. I've even felt that kind of defensiveness, but I'm saying is we're quick to say judge not. And what we mean is, You can't challenge me on anything I feel like doing. But what judge here, I I talked to you about this, Jesus actually said, make right judgments. Be careful, don't judge by appearances. What he's saying is, you can't go through life without making evaluations. You can't go through life without making some discernment, some value judgments. There's nothing wrong with that. That's important, and especially important that we make right judgments and not quick judgments. But what the word judge not means is do not judge and play God in somebody else's life where you decide the final outcome of their behavior, where you all of a sudden have already written them off and you decided they're not even worth talking to, judge not. He's talking that kind of spirit. But as far as judging, Paul says here, I've made a judgment, I've come on with a verdict, and here's what we need to do in this situation. Okay? So verse 4. He says, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. When I was reading earlier this morning, I was so struck by that phrase. And the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Can I just remind all of us, we cannot live the Christian life without the power of the Lord. If we try and do it on our own power and our own strength, everybody can tell. We need to stay humble and dependent upon his power. It takes supernatural power to do what we're about to read. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Gulp. Funny little thing here. When I was in seminary, I took the long version. I was on and off for eight and a half years. My very first seminary class I had to write a paper on that verse. Isn't that funny? I thought it was. Anyway, <laughs> I just thought, I thought, I, like, throw me in the deep end here, okay? What does that verse mean? Well, I'll talk to you about it in a little bit. So let's read verse 6. You're boasting. I'll, I'll wait. Let's read it together, verse 6. Sorry, I didn't tell you. I didn't, I didn't set you up well. Let's read the second grade box together. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Let me go on. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really already are. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's using the picture of the festival of the Passover, which many of them had been Jewish, so they understood. I'll explain it in a little bit. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning people of this world who are immoral, or, notice how he expands it, the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. That requires explanation as well. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. So let me make some observations here. And I'm praying, after the last service I talked with several people, I'm praying that I can talk about this in such a way I can't answer everyone's questions, but I'm hoping that we can talk about what we see here and what we observe. So the very first thing I want you to see is that we can make God's grace a license to disobey. We can make God's grace a license to disobey. When we're answering the question of how do we practice, you know, as God's people, how do we practice high grace, high truth? If we're not careful, we can actually take grace and run with it and turn it into a permission to stay the way we are. We can turn it into a license to do anything we want and say, hey, he already saved me, he already forgave me. And instead of living lives that are thankful, and responsive to that grace, we actually turned into license. I've listed Romans 6, one and, uh, 2 out to the left, to the right, but I'm going to just look at verse 4 in Jude, okay? So here's what it says here on the screen, if we could look at Jude 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have sleep, secretly slipped in among you in your church. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Do you see that phrase? So it's, it's easy if we're not careful to say, look, this feels good, I want to do it, I should be allowed to do it, no one has a right to tell me what I do in my own private life, and therefore I have an excuse, I have a license, I'm already forgiven. And that kind of careless attitude just all of a sudden brings the high call of Jesus right down. But it was so in everybody's face in Corinth. Now, I'm not going to talk about sexual immorality today. That's actually in two weeks. Remember I told you I'd skip two chapters? But that's coming up in chapter 6. But I want you to notice here that Paul is actually not as concerned about the sexual immorality issue as he is about the way they're handling the whole thing. Not that he's not concerned about that. But here's what I want you to notice. If you read these verses, he's saying, look, even people that don't believe in Jesus and haven't been changed by him are disgusted by this kind of practice of sexual immorality that this guy's doing. They, they don't even tolerate it, and you're tolerating it. So if you're following along, notice the next line there is that we can be proud of how tolerant and permissive we are. 
we can be proud of how tolerant and permissive we are. Now, please don't hear me. I'm not saying, let's put, you know, a chain around everybody's neck. What I'm saying is, is that this passage shows that they had actually become proud of how progressive they were. Oh, my goodness, you know, I don't even think that's a sin anymore. I don't even think, I don't even think that bothers God anymore. That was like so yesterday. And also, you watch parents... It's always, a, it's always a temptation for it, isn't it? For us to be popular with our kids, to be permissive and tolerant and say, okay, well, maybe you don't have to do that. Instead of saying, no, for your good, in the long run, you have to do this. And you may stop carrying my picture in your wallet, but you have to do this. Friends, this kind of thing. So in our culture, the buzzword is tolerance. And by tolerance, that means letting me do whatever I want, anytime I want, because I want to. But that is not love. But it feels like love. And so there is a place for tough love that says, look, I know I'm not going to be popular with you when I say this. And I wish I didn't have to bring this up because I have my own stuff that you may need to deal with me as well. But come on. Come on. So if you're following along, here's this next thing. Is our disobedience should prompt us to mourn and take action. Our disobedience, no, not just sexual immorality. Notice he adds greed. He adds all kinds of other stuff. Our disobedience to God's moral law, to his plan for us, in any way should prompt us to mourn and take action. There, there, there should be a sensitivity enough to Jesus to know what sin did to him. That we should go, I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want to intentionally hurt him and crucify him all over again. He paid unbelievable price for me. And that should keep us tender. And so Paul says, should you not rather, instead of being proud that you're so progressive, should you not, have, should you not mourn? Grieve. This word here is like you have the same thing you'd feel at a funeral. Now, I heard years ago that the word grieve is a love word. You'll never grieve for somebody you don't care about. But you will mourn and grieve for someone you care about. And you will find yourself saying, oh, no. And so if you picture a church that's high horse and self-righteousness going, let's get him. It's not the spirit, friends. It's like, oh, no. This is happening. This isn't what Jesus, this isn't why he died. This isn't why he called us. We're getting away from being salt and light. Now we're blending in and like there's no, we're decaying the world even worse. We're letting it go. Come on. And so that is a big deal. And so he says, also, take action. Years ago, I heard about a guy that was sitting on a plane. He was sitting about halfway back. And there was this guy that was getting on the plane. He was one of the last people on, so almost everybody was already seated. And he had all these camera bags and extra stuff that he was carrying. And so as he's walking down the aisle, he keeps whacking people. And as he whacks people, he's quick to go, sorry, sorry, sorry. And this guy's going, when he gets to me, if he's still whacking people... I'm going to say, if you were really sorry, you'd stop whacking people. <laughs> See what he's saying? You'd take action. At some point, you would change your mind enough to change the action. So he's just saying, those should be, those should be the kind of responses of a mature, growing believer. Notice this, that discipline, because some of us are going, wow, Jeff, like if you knew what stuff I failed in this week or what stuff I still struggle with, I'd be out. No, friends. This is not what this passage is saying. 
but I want you to see clearly what this passage is saying, is that discipline is required for willful and defiant disobedience. When, when Paul is talking about church discipline and correction here, he's not just going, let's uh, pick on, uh, no, he's saying, look, this is an ongoing situation where this guy has no desire, he doesn't even feel bad, and also there's more to this I'll come to in the next line, but it's willful, defiant, absolutely no desire to even struggle, no desire to even fight this sin. And that's the kind of stuff that's very dangerous in a church, especially, and here's the thing I wanna explain to you, Through all the different intonation of these verses in the original language, the idea is that this guy very well could have been a leader. He either was related to some prominent people in the church or he had some money. And therefore, they found themselves saying, well, you know, we don't want to lose this guy. We don't want to. Like, what if we lose this guy and also his family members? They're going to be ticked at us. And so there's that challenge. And so they're they're working with that. They're trying to figure out what to do. So notice this next line. Humble attempts to call up and restore our first. Humble attempts to call up and restore our first. Now, before I go any further with just explaining that, I want to just stop for a second and say, why, why 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 is sin a big deal? I mean, is the Bible just like being petty? So I've talked to you about this before, but the reason why sin in any of our lives left unaddressed and undealt with is a deal is because sin by its nature is progressive. It spreads and it goes farther than just the one thing we may be focusing on. So over the years, I've shared with you something that a man shared with me many years ago and we'll put it up here on the screen. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. And over the years, I've added one more line just for my own reminder. And it will hurt the Lord and his people more than words can say. It will hurt the Lord and his people more than words can say. A lot of times what happens is people go, it's not a big deal. It's not hurting anybody else. Friends, if the Lord says don't do this and we do it, it hurts him. And when often when we do that, ask the other people around whether or not they get the collateral damage. And a lot of times we just don't see it because we're justifying or we're rationalizing and it happens. But he's saying, no, 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 let's not do that. And so... You've probably heard this story. I don't know if this was a science experiment or where, but I've, I've read this before. Maybe you have too, that if you take a frog and you put it in a bowl or a kettle that's short enough on the sides where they could actually jump out if they decide to, and you begin to put that on a burner and you heat it up slowly enough and gradually enough and subtly enough, you can actually boil that frog to death without it ever having any inkling of jumping out. Why? Because it creeps up and the frog may be saying, I still got time. I can do whatever. I can still get out. And what happens is this stuff's bigger than that. So Susanna Wesley, John Wesley and Charles Wesley's mother, who had 19 children, I respect her already. How about you? 
did a great job teaching her kids God's way. And here's what she wrote to her kids. She said, how would you judge the lawfulness or the unlawfulness of pleasure? Again, this was in the 1700s, early 1800s. So um, she's writing what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Use this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, Whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, then that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. By this test, you may detect evil no matter how subtly or how plausibly temptation may be presented to you. Wow. One of the reasons why it's so dangerous is because it takes away our sensitivity to God. It it starts shorting out our conscience, which is meant to be a warning system to help us. And it can do those kind of things, and we don't even realize it's happening. And so Paul is going, don't keep putting this off. You have to deal with this, okay? But as I just told you, this is already assuming some things, because Jesus had said, look, when something comes up, you don't just immediately say, out. That is a last resort. Instead, here's the process, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And Paul would have taught this, and so those attempts would have already been made. And here's what Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. Let me say a couple things about that. Whenever I have to deal with a conflict situation with someone else, I always try and go prayerfully by first affirming the relationship You're my brother, you're my sister, I need you, we need each other, I want to have a good relationship with you, I appreciate you. If I can say those things, that's absolutely important. And then the next thing I try and always remember is to use I statements instead of you statements. Here's how, what I'm seeing, here's what I'm concerned about, instead of you, 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 that puts a person on the defensive, it's accusatory, it's not helpful, but that often happens because we just want to get to the issue And what happens is, is after we do that, then say, now, how do you see it? Tell me how it looks from your side. And let's try and get to the solution side. And that kind of spirit's different. So if he listens, you've made a friend, which was your goal in the first place. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. If you won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch, confront him with the need for repentance, and offer again God's forgiving love. And in some of your translations, it says, treat him as a tax collector. In other words, those people were like lost as geese. And so he's just saying, start over as if they're an unbeliever and try and appeal to them to respond and receive Christ's power to look at this differently. So that's some of it. That's the first steps. And then Galatians 6.1 also says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. What's the next word, friends? Gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Man, this is the tricky thing. This is why it's tough. Now, in the back of the message, uh, in the back of the bulletin today, you'll see that we have the back of the bulletin. You'll see an article about the elders. And one of their assignments is discipline. And if you're not aware of many disciplined situations in our church, that's because hopefully the elders are doing a good job. In this particular case, because the whole church knew about it, and even the whole city knew about it, he says, 
assemble yourselves and talk about it as a whole church. But most of the time, discipline issues start with one person, two people, not to shame, not to take away people's dignity, but to challenge in the right spirit. And so, again, that kind of thing has happened. Since I've been a pastor at Cherry Hills in the last, you know, 30-some years, 20-some years, we've only had two or three people that we had to ask to leave the church, and it was willfulness and it was defiance. And we appealed to them multiple times before. We tried to go in a humble spirit. Again, the pastors don't usually go because then people would have a hard time looking at one of us teaching compared to the elders. And so the elders actually protect us that way and have done a tremendous job. But it is some of the trickiness of this. And that's one of the reasons I ask you to pray for our elders because this can be a trap even for any of us that are involved in these situations. It could be a trap for you if you're in a situation yourself. So if you're following along, let me keep moving. Remember I said humble attempts to call up? If you turn your notes over to the back, you'll see something similar to what Pastor Brian Schorberg shared with us last week. And that is that John 1.14 is there. Now if you look at these lines, at the top is high grace, and at the bottom of that line in the middle is low grace. On the right is high truth and low truth over on the left. And what that does is it creates four different situations. So as you've seen, the only circle that is like Jesus is call up, which was high grace and high truth. But call out is high truth and low grace. Check out is low grace, low truth, and hang out is high grace, low truth. The idea here is that Jesus always challenged in such a way where he was inviting someone to change their mind. He always was saying, come on. So even when he said hard things, tough love, his goal was always to invite them into, back into a relationship, to change your mind so that we can walk together. And that's the same spirit that we need to have, totally different tone between call up and call out. But most of us are tempted to be in hangout. You know, it'll take care of itself. I mean, I don't want to be unpopular. I don't want them, you know, they're not going to like me after I do this. And so we, we, we just, we duck it. And that's not high grace or high truth. And that's really not love, by the way. It's pseudo love. And so this idea. So if you turn your notes back over, here's what I want to also mention. Is that at times, drastic measures are painful wake-up calls. At times, drastic measures are painful wake-up calls. It's tempting sometimes when you get to this impasse to go, well, we'll just keep trying to make incremental little changes. But at that point, if you say, hey, this is a problem. It's affecting Jesus. It's affecting our church. It's affecting you. It's affecting your witness in the world, our witness in the world. And they go, I don't care. Then at that point, what Jesus says is, you have to put them out of the fellowship so they don't continue to have influence and that decaying effect. But you don't put them out to put them out. You put them out in hope. So this incredible verse that I got asked to write a paper on when I was in seminary. Let's go back to that one, verse five, remember? So what he says is, you need to put this guy out and you know, hand him over to Satan. Like, what in the world? It does not mean so Satan can give him a good one. What it means is, is that the world was viewed outside the church, outside the umbrella of the grace of God that was in the church, out in the world is the devil's fear. Satan, where he still was the prince of this world. And therefore, what he's saying is, put them out 
un from underneath all the blessing, all the privilege, all the grace that comes by being inside a church family that's operating healthy so that they might come to their senses. Jesus actually looked at Peter after he said, I'll never deny you and all that stuff. And he goes, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, I mean, you're going to fail big time, but when that disciplines you, when that chastens you, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus could see beyond just the challenging statement there. 1 Corinthians 11, by the way, when it's talking about communion, Paul actually says, this is why some of you are sick and dying is because you continue to not deal with some of these wrong attitudes towards each other. And he's saying, don't get to the place where you don't think that there could not be some consequences for your actions. It's just one of those sobering, you go, oh my goodness. Jesus even said, take drastic measures with sin in your own life. Cut off your hand, cut off your, you know, pluck out your eye if you need to, if it's causing you to sin. He didn't mean that literally. What he was saying is be willing to do really hard things if you need to, to deal with this stuff because it's that important. Now, notice this, that hand over to Satan means put outside the fellowship in hope. I already explained that. And notice that it, it actually says in verse 13, don't even eat with such a person who claims to be a brother or sister and keeps willfully and defiantly practicing that without any repentance. Now notice, there's got to be some patience here, friends. If I'm quick to go, there you go, out, then that's, that's not the spirit at all. It's going to them a number of times saying, come on. So they can always look back and say, they at least tried to appeal to me. This was not a rash thing. But notice that there's got to be a, a hope. I want you. But notice it says that if it will destroy, you know, destroy the flesh, which means our old way of life that still wants to get our own way, so that they might be saved on the day of Jesus. In other words, if they're the real deal, this discipline, this chastening will actually bring them to their senses at some point. And if it doesn't, they at least you know, will know that God gave them a chance. In other words, sometimes people claim to be Christians, but they're not, and they show no fruit of it. So when they get put in these situations, the way they respond can be redemptive. But if they decide, no, I'm not doing that, then there's probably no evidence that they were ever truly saved. And that's a scary thing. But he says, always do it in the hope that they can be. And maybe even come back to the church and say, thanks for challenging me. Now, notice this. How correction is received can be redemptive. How correction is received can be redemptive. Some good news in this passage, uh, from this passage Many people believe that 2 Corinthians 7 is referring back to this situation. So look up here on the screen if you would. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance. In other words, it's only sorry it got caught. It never really changed its mind about the seriousness of anything. Results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm. And he goes on. And the idea here is there's godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is sorry that we hurt God. Worldly sorrow is sorry we got caught. Or sorry 
that we had to be pointed out. It's a completely different spirit. So it can be really redemptive. And we believe that this guy actually came back. Second Corinthians 2 says, now make sure you treat him lovingly and don't make, keep reminding, me of, reminding him of what happened. Take him back in, love him like you wanted to. So Christ was sacrificed so that we can be in, not of this world, if you're following along. Christ was sacrificed so we can be in, not of this world. So it has this incredible picture it says, look, when you practice this, the Passover, you know, make sure you keep the festival is that line, I think, in verse 8 or 9. It means this. What they would do is whenever they practice the Passover every year to remember how God led them out of Egypt when they put blood over the doors from the sacrificed lamb, before they did that and before they, whenever they practiced that Passover, they would take a part of the dough, cut it off, this was called leaven, and they would put it in water and let it ferment. Then they would put it back in the bread, and it would rise. Nowadays, we have yeast. They didn't have much access to yeast, even though our Bibles use that word. Leaven has this idea of influence, and it often meant don't let that influence the dough, the whole, the whole dough, the whole batch. So he says, Christ has been sacrificed, and they always, the, the lamb was always sacrificed the day after they completely cleansed their houses of any old leaven. In other words, the old life, the old way of doing things has got to go, and Christ is sacrificed, and now live out what he's accomplished in your life. Live it out. So now, just to get to the end of this, you guys have been so patient. Let me just say this. Here's two things as we close. Training to be a healthy church family first has an individual application and then a corporate application. First, if you're following along, God, let me see discipline as your desire for our good. And I circled the word our. God, let me see discipline as your desire for our good. Let me see it as love and concern for our good as a church family. I read this morning, to what degree do I include in my decisions the thought that both Jesus Christ and fellow believers are represented in the decisions I make? Do I let that affect me? Or do I only think of myself? Do I think, would this hurt? Would this hurt my church family? Would this hurt my own family? Would this hurt Jesus' name? Do I think of that? And then the last one is, without pride, let us face anything that makes us unhealthy. Without pride... Let us face anything. Let us deal with anything that makes us unhealthy. You know how a church stays healthy mostly? It's not by church leaders always having to do that. It's by starting with us. Saying, Lord, keep teaching me. Keep correcting me. Keep humbling me. Keep showing me how to go the right way. Keep encouraging me. And that can happen. So here's how we wanted to close. We want to sing a song called Give Us Clean Hands. And as we sing this song... There's going to be a group prayer that we're going to be able to read, and then we'll be dismissed. But I, I just want to stop and say something. Sometimes some of you have to write an email or you have to approach those of us that are leaders with concerns. And more times than I can count, I am blown away by the humble posture, the call-up spirit that so many of you aim for, even when you may be frustrated or disappointed. And I just want to say, way to go. That enables the Holy Spirit to move freely in our church and it also helps us make sure we own our part because we've got to all be humble as we work on this together so that people can see Jesus through our church family. But we'll sing. Thanks for joining us today. 
If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.